This morning we'll turn again into Mark's Gospel as we, as we begin the sermon this morning. So turn with me there, to, if you would, to Mark chapter 3. There's a sermon outline, of course, on pages 8 and 9 in the bulletin. As well, just one announcement. The newcomers class will be meeting again uh, this week in the library uh, at 11.15. So if you uh, have not joined us there yet or would like to, that would be the place to be at 11.15 Uh, in the library for the newcomers. We're moving back into Mark's gospel, having taken a week off last week when Randy Neighbors was here. We recall that we're being introduced to Jesus in these early chapters of of the story. Who is Jesus? What has he come to do? What has he come to teach? And we've moved through these five conflict narratives that we saw in chapter 2 and into chapter 3 to see that Jesus will not join the agenda of the religious leaders of his day. He won't, he was, he's got to show them that they have missed the mark about the heart of God and his law. Now we're moving into another section which begins to explore the questions about membership in the kingdom of God. Who's in and who's out and why? The kingdom of God is being announced in words and in deeds. And we begin to shift a bit from the question of Jesus' identity to the question of the responses of people to him. There are insiders and there are outsiders. There are disciples, there are opponents. And the parable of the four soils, which we see in Mark chapter 4, illustrates this. Four different uh, responses to the person and the message of Jesus. The summary statement for the section is there at the end in Mark 4, verses 33 and 34. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So people are receiving the word. They're seeing it in action. They're receiving receiving it as far as what is being taught to them by Jesus. They're being taught now in parables. And some are receiving further explanation. Some are responding in faith. And some are not. So in this section, we encounter our text this morning in which Jesus addresses the issue of family. How do human families figure into this new kingdom of God? And as we'll see, Jesus wants to reorient people to the all-encompassing nature of the kingdom. And and thus, Jesus is is relativizing the family. He's putting the family relationships into a bigger context. So look with me in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Please pray with me. Father, again, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would guide and direct our our hearts and my words, that they would be yours, and that you would speak to your people this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Human families are interesting, aren't they? We giggle. There's no more powerful institution than the family for shaping us for what we think is normal, for what we think is traditional, for what we believe, for ways that we think, for ways that we speak, and ways that we act. All families are unique. They have their own perks and their own baggage. 
They have their own strength. They have their own flaws. Family dynamics are complicated, as you have lots of different personalities, lots of different histories, lots of different kinds of relationships that are represented. Some families are sort of, and and we have their own culture, right? Some families are sort of small and quiet and studious. Some families are loud and outgoing and obnoxious. I remember when I was in seminary, I took a class on marriage and family counseling, and I learned for a bit the first time about some of these things, about family dynamics and how uh, the common traits that are found in families and some of how families work. And one of my professors talked about the TV show Everybody Loves Raymond. And I don't know if any of you watched that show or were fans of it back in the day, but if you remember, right, they're, they're the two brothers and the mother is what? She's the central force in the family, right? She's small and she's feisty, but she could turn those grown sons of hers into idiots with a look. Like, she could make them do anything. She had such power over them, which, of course, drove Ray's wife crazy, right? Because he would always choose to appease his mother and do what he didn't want to do just to make her happy. Then he would do what his wife wanted him to do, and what she thought was best for their family, right? So it's the study of family dynamics being played out, and it was, you know, with some humor to it, and, and, and yet insight on how families work. That's just one example of the funny ways and relationships that we see coming out of the study of the family. Well, we get this interesting section here where Jesus' family has its own culture, Jesus' family has its own dynamics, and we see a bit of this this morning. Our text begins with, in, in verse 20, really, Jesus enters a house. We don't know exactly whose house it was, and he begins to teach there. And, uh, and it, it's so crowded that people somehow can't even eat. And he's mired in this controversy with the teachers of the law. Again, the insiders and outsiders, the opponents, are saying, you know, are slandering him and accusing him of being influenced by demons. Into this mess come his mother and his brothers, in verse 31. Standing outside, or then Jesus, sorry, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So the house is packed. Jesus, uh, perhaps the family can't come in. They're calling. They're inviting him to come outside to where they are. And we know, of course, something about Jesus' family. His mother was Mary. His half-brother James becomes an important figure in the early church. We don't know a lot about the other brothers. Uh, Elsewhere in the Gospels, not here, but elsewhere, it's mentioned that Jesus is described as having sort of half-sisters as well in the family. We don't get any mention of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, after the birth narratives, so the assumption is that he was uh, not living anymore. Verse 31 is actually picking up from verse 21, in which Jesus' people, that's probably also referring to his family. The Greek is a little ambiguous, but Jesus' people have come to get him. In verse 21, it says, When his family heard about this, they went out to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. So basically, Jesus' family thinks that he's lost his mind and he needs to come home. Why? Well, it's a bit hard to say. John 7, 5 tells us that at this point, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. They didn't believe in what he was doing. 
So it seems like the situation in one is, is one in which Jesus is not doing what his family members think he should be doing. So they've come to take charge of him, to seize him, is a, another way we could say it, because they think he's out of his mind. Can you imagine this? Right? Jesus is an embarrassment to them, it seems like. This is a family intervention, first century, you know, Palestinian Jewish style, right? They've decided the time has come. We're going to go get Jesus, and we're going to just kind of take him back home and begin resume life as normal. He's gone a bit too far. He's lost it. You know, we need to, we're the mother, brothers, we need to band together, and we need to address this problem with Jesus. And there's probably an expectation in that culture that the son would have the kind of respect and kindness to, or kindness, I don't know, whatever, that would require him to do what his family told him to do, even if it was sort of an outward obedience. Family ties, and and the culture was very strong in that day, of course. The most important questions that that a person would ask about someone was, who is your father, and where are you from? And that illustrates for us that tribe and clan and lineage were really important markers for anyone in that day in that, you know, Middle Eastern context. And of course, Middle Eastern people are famous for their genealogies. They're famous for this sense of respect, uh, at least outwardly, right? Respect for elders and for family. So there's a couple really interesting reversals going on here, right? Jesus' family is outside, and they're inviting him to join them because they think he's out of his mind. Over the past few chapters, we've seen the opposite dynamic, right? Jesus has been the one who's been calling. He's been the one who's been inviting people to follow him. It's the same word, the same idea. They're calling. They're inviting. They want to call him to them. And Jesus is calling everyone to himself. And eventually they'll hear this call and follow him. Acts chapter 1 gives us a sense that, uh, that before Pentecost, his family was together with the disciples, that they had come to the place of, after the resurrection of believing in him. But now, you know, they're not there. And th- so that's one kind of reversal, right? They're calling him, but he's the one who's doing the calling. He's the one who's making this new uh, group of people who are following him. The second is that the insiders are outsiders and the outsiders are insiders. No one would expect to be closer to the inner circle of someone than his immediate family. But in this scene, his family, the insiders, are the outsiders. They're far away. They're stuck outside. They're perhaps even prevented from being close to him. But the crowds, they're inside. They're close. They're listening to what Jesus taught. And we see this pattern throughout the Gospels with Jesus' ministry, a ministry to the outcasts, ministry to the marginalized. He draws them close while his people those who should have been closest to him, his, his hometown people of Nazareth, the Jews, the religious leaders, who should have been closer to him, are not as close and are criticizing and are going in the other direction. And so this kind of reversal is the theme that we see lots of places in the Gospels, showing us this sort of surprising and upside-down nature of God's kingdom. The Apostle Paul writes of the same dynamic in Ephesians 2, In Christ, we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And in Mark 
of chapter 6, as I alluded to that already, that as Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth, the people take offense at him. They scoff and they disbelieve. And they miss out on his miracles because of their lack of faith. Those who should have known him the best miss it the most. So Jesus here is changing the idea of family. He's creating a new and a different one. Verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus begins with a rhetorical question. Who are they? Here they are. They're sitting here around me. They're gathered around to listen and to learn. Those who do God's will are my family, Jesus says. And we hear this perhaps as normal. We've read these words maybe before. But this is a radical statement. My family members are these people, not those people. Right? The people who raised me and who are related to me, wait, are they my brother and my sisters? Or are these people who believe, even if I just met them, even if I hardly know their name, right? So, so Jesus is, is doing something really radical here that would have been very shocking to, his, the, to the listeners of his day. On the one hand, it's a very positive statement about what has been accomplished by Jesus. There is a new way to describe a family. The outsiders, according to blood have been made insiders. And the Bible is full of this image of relationship with God in familial terms. God is Father. Jesus is the Son. God is the Father. His people are His children. You can't come into the kingdom unless you enter like a child. That's another really radical statement, by the way. John tells us in 1 John 3 that we're children of God, that we are waiting to be made fully like Jesus when He appears. And the second idea here is that Jesus is 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 himself our brother, as the writer of Hebrews says. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. I mean, brothers and sisters, of course. Uh, According, uh, and then he continues, the writer of Hebrews continues in chapter 2. Jesus was made, therefore, because he is a brother, he is made like us in every way. He was made fully like us, And we, one day, will be made fully like him. This new family is really good news, isn't it? To make the point further, there are a couple other stories in the Gospels that that make this point. In Luke 11, we read the story of this unnamed woman who calls out a blessing on Jesus' mother as he's teaching. You know, blessed is the the woman who who gave you birth. and, And Jesus turns it. And he says, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Right? So there's certainly a blessing in being biologically related to Jesus. But he's saying clearly that the bigger blessing is to be in his spiritual family. And everyone who hears and obeys is invited. This isn't an exclusive club. This isn't only open to particular clans and tribes and nations. No, this family is open to everyone who will believe. And... It even includes people from every tribe and nation and language. We see this in action as Jesus calls his disciples. They leave behind their families and they follow him. In Mark 10, there's a great statement there about this promise of reward. 
Mark 10, chapter, um, I mean, verse 28. This is in the context of the story of the rich young man who went away sad because he wouldn't follow Jesus and leave his possessions behind. And so Peter said, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. When the disciples asked, what about us? Is there a reward for us who've left everything and followed you, unlike that rich young man? Jesus assured them that their new family is a good one, that it's a place of blessing and delight in the presence of God, and that the reward is a hundred times as much in this life. And with it, persecutions, plus eternal life in the age to come. This is a huge promise in the new family, in the kingdom of God. There's a positive blessing in being a part of this family. But we also have to flip the coin. Giving ultimate loyalty to Jesus means that earthly, nuclear, biological family has moved back a notch. It's into a different place in the context of the kingdom. There's a negative aspect to the call of Jesus when it comes to the prominence of the family. Jesus divides families. Jesus relativizes families. He makes them less than ultimate. He takes the place of the father or the brother, and he says, be loyal to me among, above all others. And so we get these kind of hard statements in the Gospels, right? Follow me, the one who wanted to said, hey, hey, I'll follow you, but first let me bury my father, right? Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead, in Matthew 8. Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Sort of most ominously of all, Jesus said in Mark 13, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this has indeed happened in the history of the church. Families broken, families divided because of Jesus. Some of you, a few weeks ago, met Pastor Abu, who is the denominational leader of the church in Ghana, in West Africa, that we are in partnership with. He was here on a Wednesday night a few weeks ago. He shared a story about growing up in a a Muslim family that was very prominent in his village. His dad, I, I don't know if his dad was the imam or the ulama, one of the religious scholars, but... Uh, He was taught to read Arabic and uh, studied the Quran. Somehow, at some point in his life, as he was growing up, he was given a Bible by a missionary. He began to read the stories of the Bible, comparing them to the the Quran. And the Lord opened his heart to understand that the biblical stories are the true ones, and especially the stories about Jesus being much more than a prophet. And this realization, this work of God in his life, came at a great cost to him in the context of his earthly family. He was kicked out of his family. They held a funeral for him. I think he said that he was invited to the funeral. I I don't know how that works. Maybe maybe I misunderstood. But there was a funeral for him. He had nowhere to go. He had to find a place to live. He lived with this missionary, I guess, that had befriended him 
the Lord eventually led him to seminary and into the ministry. Now he has a new family. He has both an earthly family of his own, and he has a spiritual family of brothers and sisters and disciples who are bringing the gospel to tribes in the villages of Gambia and into the neighboring countries, some of which were racked by the Ebola outbreak last year. This has been a painful path, right? This is with persecutions, Jesus says. But Pastor Abu would say, I think if he were here, we could ask him, have you received more than a hundredfold? I think he would say yes. I think he would say many more than a hundredfold in terms of what I have received from God and what I have received from the church and the promise of eternal life. What does it mean for us as we reflect on this passage this morning? First, I want to begin actually with an application about for our children. Children, this message, youth, this message is for you. You are part of an earthly family. You can also be part of a spiritual family. We trust that you are as you're connected to us here in the church. God calls you to listen to and obey your parents. Jesus calls you to listen to him. And sometimes those things don't always exactly line up, especially as you get older. So it's right for you to feel the tension, perhaps, of feeling the need to obey and be respectful to your parents as you're called to do, and also the need to obey your Savior and to follow him wherever that would take you. children, this message is for you. It's for us, all of us as well, who aren't children. What about our earthly families? I'm not a cultural commentator, right? But it seems to me that our culture is of two minds when it comes to the issue of the family in society. There's a great body of evidence to suggest that the family has been eroded as an institution over the last few decades. The family has been redefined. The family has been undervalued. The government has stepped into vacuums or or pushed its way into vacuums with things like Social Security, which would have been something that the family would always do. They would always care for their elderly and their family members, but if they're not doing it or if the government feels like they have to do it, that's one change. Governments have taken steps to uh, to not support families in some ways to make them less stable because of no-fault divorce or changes in those kinds of laws that have affected the stability of the family. The traditional arrangements of the family were seen as somewhat unnecessary or optional for the raising of new generations. This role can be accomplished in different ways, was the idea. And I think we can see that in many ways, at at a sort of a macro level, that this has created lots of problems in our culture. So we can see that it's a problem for society when the family, as God designed it, is undervalued or is... Uh, redefined. Jesus didn't undervalue families. He valued children. He used them as examples of faith. He gave the widow back her son, if you remember. There are lots of stories of Jesus taking care of families. And we believe what the Bible teaches about covenant families, that God works faithfully and generationally to parents and children and their children as he promises blessings and passes them down through the generations. For Israel, 
in the ancient times and for the church today. But Jesus didn't make the opposite mistake of our culture either. In many circles around us, the family is idealized, it's idolized, it's overvalued, right? The identity of the parent can become wrapped up in their children and in their children's achievements. It's only partly about the child. It's really mostly about the parent, right? Arrogant and self-righteousness, arrogance and self-righteousness can be the result of parents whose kids excel, whose kids turn out well by whatever standard one might use. Our culture creates kids that are constantly competing and measuring themselves against others. And the blame for much of this, I think, can be placed on the parents, who are the ones who are competing through their kids, who are the ones who think that their American dream is tied up also in their children. I read an article recently, a former dean at Stanford University, who spoke about how helicopter parents are ruining a generation of kids. You know what helicopter parents are, right? They overparent. They're always there. They swoop in at any sign of, of trouble to rescue their kids and pull them out of situations that are, that are difficult. Her point was that by overparenting and overprotecting their college students, they're making the student both filled with anxiety about success, but also incapable of actually succeeding when faced with a challenge. This was her analysis. Of course, people, you know, you start to read the comments and you see people, you know, arguing back and forth and, and, and making good points. But the idea was this overparenting creates all kinds of problems for the child. And a university administrator is pointing that out. These cultural trends and habits, of course, can find their way into the church, can't they? It's hard to be criticized by others in the church about something as an adult. It's even harder to feel like someone is criticizing a child. Even if it's something I need to hear. Even if it comes from a posture of humility and love. It's really hard, isn't it? When someone is criticizing us or when someone is criticizing even more our children. Within the church, we can be tempted to compare in the same ways that our society does. Move towards self-righteousness and pride or move towards jealousy and frustration. Part of the answer to either extreme is the recognition that our children are really not ours. Our children are the Lord's. Parents are given a great responsibility and privilege and stewardship in our children's lives. We're given promises and responsibilities regarding them. But our job is one that, I don't know how to describe it exactly, it has limits, right? In one way, our goal is to work ourselves out of a job. I mean, on the other hand, we're always parents. We hope our kids will come to us for advice when we're old. But, we're, but, but we have a calling to, that the, the relationship over time will change. And we can't be wrapped up in our identity with that of our children and think that they're, they're ours. At root, we must admit that our children are the Lord's. And parents, we take this vow when we baptize infants in, uh, from our book of church order that says, that asks the parents, do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him or her a godly example and pray with and for them and all of the rest of that? There's this sense of 
unreservedly dedicating our children to God and asking Him to be the one who works in their lives. As much as we try to do our part as parents, we know unless, the, unless God works, their hearts won't change. The parent is called to the wisdom that comes from the Lord to walk this path of valuing appropriately the earthly family, not idolizing it and not diminishing it either. We're called to keep our earthly families in the right perspective, which isn't easy to do. We tend towards imbalance, naturally, one direction or the other. This is a bit of the application about what do we think about earthly families? What about this spiritual family? In Psalm 27, it says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. The promise of a new family is given not just to Pastor Abu, but to all who believe in Christ. And some of us come from Christian families of origin, and some don't, but we all need, we all really need the Christian family that we find only in the church. All of our earthly families are broken. They're full of people. And Jesus came that we would have hope for the earthly family as well as the spiritual family. But not that we would hope in the earthly family. And even further, the redemption of the earthly family comes through Christ and is lived out in this new spiritual family in the life of the church. So there's a lot more, of course, that we could say about this. The church needs to help strengthen families as part of our discipleship of each member. We as church members promise to do this every time an infant is baptized. We share in the responsibility of the parent. The proverb, of course, is it takes a village, but I would rather say it takes a church. It takes a church to raise a child, doesn't it? We need the support and encouragement of each other. And it's not just about parents and children. Because we're in a spiritual family. We're all parents. We're all children. We're all brothers and sisters in the church. Singles and widows and empty nesters and college students. And all of us, right? All together. There's no one who's excluded from this family. We're all members of one another. To use the image of the body that is so common in Scripture. So Jesus calls us to take seriously this idea that we're a new family, which is the local church. Our loyalty is to him, but the expression of that loyalty happens in the context of a local church. And so there's something significant about a local church. It's not like we're we're American consumers, right? We pick churches the way we pick supermarkets. In broad strokes, right? But we shouldn't. Because it's not that. It's different. American consumerism doesn't work when it comes to the church because it's it's two different things, right? We're called to together to be a body. And there's no perfect family, right? Our families have our weaknesses. Our families have our faults. Our families have our foibles. There's no perfect church. Right? If we haven't already, we'll disappoint you. But we're called to something bigger in this family as, as a church. It's the way the Lord has put it together. And so he takes this opportunity to say to his earthly family, wait a minute, 
I'm creating something new here that's bigger and that includes everybody. And, 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 you know, earthly families are really important, really important. But this is the kingdom of God we're talking about, Jesus says. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, and my mother. How does this news about a new family encourage you this morning? How does it challenge you? This, is a hard, this was a hard sermon to put together in a way, because there's so much going on here. And so much that we could think about, and so many different ways that we could try to tease out the application of it. But consider these words this week. Think about what it means that Jesus has invited us into his family, and that we are part of it. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful this morning that you have done this amazing thing in sending your Son, made like us in every way, that we could be brothers, that Jesus is our elder brother, that we are brothers and sisters in him. We thank you for that powerful truth this morning, that we, Father, are your children. And we do ask that you would help us to apply it. And as we think about our own earthly families, whatever they're like, and as we think about our spiritual family in the church, Lord, give us wisdom to, to consider these things. Uh, help us to, uh, to hear your encouragement and to hear your challenge as we reflect on them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.